We might get started, I think. Um, welcome, everybody, to this week's Oxford Transitional Justice Research Seminar. Uh, it's, a, it's a real privilege for us this week to have a, a good friend and colleague uh, here in the SSL, Dapo Akunde. Uh, I know I say it every week that our speaker often needs no introduction. In this case, it's definitely, definitely the case. Um, but as most of you will already know, Dapo is a university lecturer in public international law uh, here in Oxford. He's a Yamini Fellow at St Peter's College. He's also the co-director of the Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict, ELAC, which I know that several of you have already had a lot of involvement with. Recently, Dapo got poached by Yale uh, as a, a visiting associate professor in the law school over there, but we were glad that he came back to Oxford. Uh, Dapo has a publication list which is all of you will know is longer than my arm, uh, so I will not recount it in great detail, except to say that he, he is the editor of the Oxford Companion to International Criminal Justice. And many of you will also know his work as a co-editor of the uh, EJIL Talk blog, which is the blog of the European Journal of International Law, where he can be found commenting on almost any topic relating to international criminal justice under the sun. Uh, he's unbelievably qualified to speak to us this evening on the topic of immunities of state officials, international crimes and foreign domestic courts. Dapo, thanks very much for being here with us. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be, to be here. It's, um, it's a diverse group of people I know, and I've really struggled, actually, to think about how to pitch this, this talk, because at some level I want to talk about some technical issues of international law, but also these are issues of sort of broader concern in the area of international criminal justice, of interest not just to international lawyers but to, but to others as well. So when I lapse into Latin, and I will, <laughs> excuse me, from time to time, forgive me, um, I wondered where to start, where should I start? And the perfect place, I think, to start was handed to me by George W. Bush, actually. <laughs> So some of you might know that George W. Bush was due to speak in Geneva, Switzerland, last Friday. And that talk was cancelled and his whole visit to Switzerland was cancelled because, according to George Bush's spokesperson, there were security concerns. Things might get out of hand. Demonstrators might harass the former President of the United States. But then it, it then emerged that at least one of the reasons, and perhaps the primary reason, why he did not go to Switzerland last week is because a number of human rights groups had put um, a, a dossier together and sent it to prosecutors in Switzerland and asked that George W. Bush be arrested and prosecuted for torture, and they also allege uh, grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions. In other words, he should be arrested and prosecuted in Switzerland for international crimes. And that is precisely the scenario that I will be talking about today. The question essentially is this. To what extent should state officials who are alleged to have committed international crimes be prosecuted in the domestic courts of other states? That is my, my question. And in particular, to what extent are these state officials entitled to the immunities which international law ordinarily accords to state officials 
in circumstances where these people are accused of international crimes. So should these immunities from prosecution continue to hold when these state officials or former state officials are accused of genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity? Now just to summarize, and let me just try and put this in, in the general landscape of of international criminal justice, if you like, even of, of transitional justice and, and of human rights law. There are obviously a number of mechanisms by which um, attempts might be made to enforce human rights law and to enforce the prohibitions that international criminal law provides for. And I think as a matter of international law, the primary mechanisms by which these norms ought to be enforced are the domestic courts of the state where the human rights violation occurs, um, either in terms of civil proceedings, compensation for the people whose rights have been abused, or in criminal proceedings, prosecution of those persons who have committed these human rights violations. As we know, of course, the, the state concerned may choose to do things in a non-judicial fashion, but primarily international law imposes an obligation on the state where the human rights violation has occurred or the state that has committed the human rights violation. It imposes an obligation on that state to compensate and to provide for some redress. We know, however, that this does not always happen and particularly when we're talking about human rights violations and international crimes, we are talking about acts which in the main are committed by state agents. And that is one of the reasons why the domestic um, courts may not provide an adequate forum for uh, redress because the state's concern may choose not to prosecute. And so attention then turns to other mechanisms for enforcing these um, rights and for prosecuting these crimes. And in particular, over the last, um, I would say, 50 years in the case of human rights, and particularly the last sort of 15, 20 years in the case of international criminal law, attention has shifted to international courts. If the domestic courts won't do it, then let's do it in international courts, either international human rights tribunals or regional human rights tribunals or alternatively international criminal courts, the ICTY, the ICTR, the ICC. But of course we also know that these are courts of limited jurisdiction. There might be reasons why these cases may not um, end up before an international court. And that then leads us to perhaps another forum for enforcing these rights, which are the domestic courts of foreign states. So if the domestic court of the state responsible fails, international courts are not available for one reason or another, the question then arises, can these crimes be prosecuted or can redress be sought in the courts of, of a foreign state? There are a number of reasons why this might prove to be difficult or impossible. Some of these are practical, you know, the availability of evidence, getting witnesses to go to a foreign domestic court, getting a prosecutor who is willing to actually take a case which has nothing to do with the country concerned. So there are lots of, of practical problems. But there are also a number of legal obstacles, and that's really what I want to focus on. The legal obstacles to enforcing human rights, to what you might call transnational enforcement of human rights or transnational prosecutions for, 
for international crimes. And as far as international law goes, there are two main obstacles. First of all, you have to show that the courts of the country that you are seeking prosecution, that they have jurisdiction, that that state has jurisdiction and that its courts also have jurisdiction. And of course, this is the whole question of universal jurisdiction, right? So that is one potential obstacle and there's one debate surrounding universal jurisdiction. To what extent do domestic courts have jurisdiction for crimes committed abroad by non-nationals against non-nationals? The second obstacle is the principle of immunity. The idea that under international law, state officials are immune from the jurisdiction of other states. And of course, given that we're talking about crimes in the main, at least in, in our scenario, committed by state officials, this principle comes into, into play, the principle of immunity. So even if you can show that there's jurisdiction, there might be questions about the immunity of, of state officials. Um, in the media reports, actually, concerning George Bush's cancelled visit to Switzerland, I, I noticed that the Associated Press quoted a spokesperson for the Swiss Ministry of Justice who said, well, we did some preliminary investigations and George Bush would have been immune anyway, and so we wouldn't have, have prosecuted him because under international law, he's a former head of state and he would have been immune. And that's the question that I want to, to address, whether that is actually, actually so. I assume that General Pinochet got similar advice, or maybe not, before he came. I think he was similarly situated. It's actually very difficult to distinguish the two cases, but it didn't turn out so, at least in the UK, it didn't turn out in the same way for him. So I want to address this question of immunity of state officials from the jurisdiction of, um, of other states. Now, the principle of immunity is, to some extent, a long-standing one in, in international law, and it flows in the main from the idea of state equality, the idea that states are equal and that one state should not exercise authority or, or competence over the actions of another state. That's the basic idea behind immunity, and it's the idea that um, it's not just the state that is immune, but also the officials of a state are immune because the state acts through its officials. So what I want to do is to set out the types of immunities that international law provides for and then to consider whether those immunities apply in the case of persons who are alleged to have committed international crimes. That's what I want to, to do. So international law provides for, for two types of immunities for state officials. Um, the two types of immunities are, first of all, what we might call a status immunity, or what international lawyers refer to as immunity ratione personae. But this is an immunity that attaches to a particular office or attaches to a particular status. It's an immunity which is available to a limited group of officials, a limited group of, of senior officials. And in particular, we're talking about the head of state, diplomats who are accredited to another state, potentially also the head of, of government. These immunities are conferred on those officials who are responsible for, or who have some responsibility for the conduct of, of the international relations of, of a state. And the idea is that um, 
it is essential for these officials to be immune from the jurisdiction of other states in order to ensure the smooth conduct of international relations, in order to ensure that they are free to perform their functions, then it is um, important that they not be harassed by other states and that they are able to, to engage in, in the business that they, are, that they are charged with. Now this immunity, as I've already indicated, is only available to a limited group of officials. And it's only available to those officials whilst they are in office. So it's an immunity that attaches to their status and it only applies whilst they're in office. But whilst they're in office, this immunity is deemed to be absolute, at least as far as criminal prosecutions go. This immunity is absolute and it means that it covers not only official acts of the individual, but also private acts. So they may not be prosecuted even for things that they do in a, in a purely private capacity. Now, in the case of, um, in, in a case before the International Court of Justice in 2002, I think it was, the arrest warrant case. This is a case which was brought by um, the Democratic Republic of Congo against Belgium. And it was a case which arose out of Belgium's universal jurisdiction statute, as it then was. There was an arrest warrant issued for the then Congolese foreign minister by a Belgian magistrate. And it was alleged that this uh, Congolese foreign minister had committed war crimes, crimes against humanity. And the case went to the International Court of Justice and the ICJ said, even if it is alleged that an official in this category, this limited group, even if it is alleged that that person has committed international crimes, that this type of immunity continues to subsist. Okay, this type of immunity continues to apply. But one of the key questions that arises in relation to this type of immunity is who is entitled to this type of immunity? I said the head of state, that's generally acknowledged, and diplomats, this is also acknowledged not only under customary international law, but under, under relevant treaties. But in the arrest warrant case, this person was the foreign minister. Now, we have seen similar invocations of this type of immunity in, in domestic courts. So as I'm sure you will know, there have been attempts to arrest um, Israeli officials in the UK, um, an attempt to arrest Ehud Barak, uh, was that last year or two years ago? Uh, Livni, I think, was last year. Uh, Almog, who at the time was defense minister, I think he no, was. No, he was the former commander of the Gaza. He was, but I think when, when they were trying to arrest him, he was defense minister, was he not? No. He wasn't, okay. So a, a, number, of, a number of officials attempt to arrest Chinese uh, officials on trips to, to the UK, and this type of incidents are repeated in, in other countries in the world. And it raises the question of where, who is entitled to this type of immunity that attaches to a particular status. Now in the arrest warrant case, the ICJ, as I indicated, justified the immunity on the grounds that these are people who are engaged in the conduct of international relations. So these people have immunity because they're engaged in the conduct of international relations. And it was for that reason that they said the foreign minister has this immunity. But if this is an immunity that applies, um, it's an immunity that applies to people who are engaged in the conduct of international relations, 
then it is potentially very, very wide. There are a huge number of state officials who are engaged in the conduct of international relations. It's impossible, I would say, to carve out a group of people and say, well, your job is domestic affairs, your job is international affairs. Because if you think just in the context of, of the EC, the EC Council meets in, in sort of various guises. You know, finance ministers get together, you know, home affairs ministers get together, justice affairs ministers get together, the labor minister has to go to the ILO. You know, every minister will say, well, part of my job is the conduct of international relations. And then potentially this type of immunity applies to a rather, a rather large, large group. And it, to my mind, actually, this immunity that attaches to an office, there are not what there, there are actually two types of of immunity, and not not the one. First of all, you have the immunity of the head of state, and international law has long accorded immunity to foreign heads of state. But to some extent, this is a a carryover, if you like from the days when the head of state was regarded as recognizing the, or, or sorry, embodying the sovereignty of, of the state. And that was one of the reasons for according absolute immunity to, to the head of state. It is questionable whether that same type of immunity, which applies to a serving head of state, in other words, a, uh, a head of state who is in office, ought to extend to other officials e even when they are engaged in the conduct of international relations. So in a recent paper, this talk that I'm giving is, is based on a paper that I've just written and published in the European Journal of, of International Law. Um, my co-author and I argue that the immunity of the head of state is based really on, on two things. One is symbolic and one is functional. The symbolic aspect of the immunity of the head of state is the fact that the head of state represents or symbolizes the sovereignty of the state. But the more functional aspect of the immunity of the head of state is that it prevents, this immunity effectively prevents the government of one state from changing the government of another state, right? Because to arrest and potentially imprison a serving head of state is to change the government of, of another state. And that provides a functional reason for according immunity to a serving head of state, even when that serving head of state is abroad, say, on a private visit. Because even if they're abroad on a private visit, if you were to detain and arrest them, you're effectively um, changing the government of another state. But the same reasons don't necessarily carry across to other state officials, even when they are um, they may be engaged in the conduct of international relations. So we argue that under international law, there is an immunity for those who are engaged in a special, who are engaged in the conduct of a special mission for a state. There's a treaty that deals with this, but we argue that this treaty also is custom international law. So you have the immunity of the head of state and also, I would say, the head of government, and then you have the immunities of those who are engaged in the conduct of special missions for the state. In other words, those who are abroad with the consent of the territorial state engaged in conducting, if you like, negotiations on behalf of that state. Why is this important? It's important because 
it means that for this larger group, in other words, not the head of state, not the head of government, that immunity does not exist, for example, if they are abroad on a private visit. Um, this was actually the issue, or one of the issues, in the arrest warrant case about whether this immunity applies if they are abroad on a private visit. And if the immunity is one which applies to those who are engaged in the conduct of a special mission for a state, it means, one, of course, they have to have the consent of the territorial state to be there, to engage in that business. And two, if it is on private visit, they are not immune. And that should be sufficient to allow for the smooth conduct of international relations, because it means that in circumstances when the person is actually doing that business, they are immune, but not in, in other, other circumstances. The other type of immunity, so I said there were two, if you, if you recall. I said the first one is, I called it a status immunity or an immunity ratione persone, the one which is about um, the head of state and others who are engaged in the conduct of international relations. And I, I broke that immunity down into two, that for the head of state and then that for others. The second big category of immunity under international law is what you might call an immunity which attaches to the act of officials or an official act immunity. And the Latin phrase which international law is used for this is immunity ratione materiae. So it's an official act immunity. Now this is an immunity which extends to all those who act on behalf of the state. So anybody who acts on behalf of the state is in principle, in principle, immune from the jurisdiction of foreign states. Okay. So anybody, be they state official or not, who acts on behalf of the state is in principle immune from the jurisdiction of, of other states. This immunity extends beyond serving officials because it's an immunity that attaches to the act itself. It's because you are engaged in official act. So even when the person has left office, the immunity continues to subsist. Now you might wonder, why would international law accord this type of immunity? There are two reasons why in international law accords this immunity. And I would argue two important reasons why this immunity exists. The first reason is, a, is that this immunity provides in effect for a substantive defense. In effect, what it is saying is that an individual official should not be held responsible for acts which are really the act of the state. Okay? So in an ordinary circumstance, it is saying that an individual official should not be held responsible for acts which are acts of, of the state. So the fact that it was the individual official who signed the legislation or issued an order, if it's an act of the state, it is the state that is responsible and not the individual official. That's the first reason why this immunity exists. The second reason why this immunity exists is really a procedural one. If one state is immune from the jurisdiction of another state, then that principle would be defeated if you could simply go against the official that committed the act. States always act through officials. States are, if you like, artificial constructs. They do things through officials. So the principle of state immunity can only work if the actual officials who engaged in the activity are also immune. 
Otherwise, it would be possible for one state to exercise jurisdiction over the acts of another state by simply holding the official responsible, by simply saying, well, we know we can't go against the state, but we will prosecute the officials who have done the act on behalf of the state. So this type of immunity, this official act immunity, has those two purposes. One, it provides this substantive defense, and two, it provides this guarantee or, or an attempt at a guarantee um, of not circumventing the immunity of, of the state themselves. Now the question that arises in our context is, does this type of immunity apply when the official is accused of committing human rights violations or when they are accused of committing an international crime? Okay. So we can think about it in the context of, in say, an ordinary context of the state commits um, a, a, a wrong or enters into a contract. Ordinarily, we might say, well, the individual should not be held responsible for that. But if it's an international crime, should the individual official be held responsible? Okay. And should this official act immunity apply? Now, let me start from the answer and then go to, to, to the reasons for, for the answer. The answer is disputed by, by some, but I think there are now a large number of cases that show that this second type of immunity does not apply when the official is accused of committing international crimes. Okay. So, in other words, where a former official or even a serving official who does not have the status immunity where they are accused of committing international crimes, I think there's a large body of evidence that shows that they are not immune from the jurisdiction of foreign courts. Where is this evidence to be, to be found? Well, this evidence is to be found in the large number of prosecutions that have occurred for international crimes. And they are a large number of prosecutions. Very often we forget that at the end of the Second World War we not only had the Nuremberg um, trials, which were trials of the major war criminals as they were styled, but we also had numerous, hundreds, possibly even thousands of prosecutions of lower level officials which were done at a national level, done by essentially the victorious states of German and other countries' officials who had committed, committed war crimes. Now these German, Japanese and other um, persons who had committed these war crimes were of course state officials. They were soldiers, they were political actors, they were you know, people who were officials in, in government, but nonetheless, they were prosecuted for, for war crimes and crimes against humanity. And those prosecutions proceeded at least implicitly on the basis that they were not immune, that they were subject to the jurisdiction of, of a foreign court, and that in the case of international crimes, the foreign court was entitled to, to prosecute. So we have those post-World War II cases. We have also much more recent cases, of which, of course, the most famous is the one that I referred to earlier on, the Pinochet case, right? So Pinochet is, if you like, the, the um, well, both, I think, 
in some regards the definitive but also the iconic case in this area with the House of Lords in, in this country holding that General Pinochet as a former head of state was not immune from arrest and prosecution for, for torture. Okay. So we have cases that point in this direction and there are others in other countries dealing with prosecutions of soldiers and, and state officials. So that's the answer that I would provide. And just to apply that answer now to what happened in Switzerland last week in relation to George Bush, obviously what the, the, for, the Ministry of Justice spokesperson said is contrary to what I have just been setting out. The Ministry of Justice person said we've had this preliminary inquiry and he would have been immune. But if we go through what I've just been talking about, would George Bush have been entitled to that first type of immunity? Well, no, not today. Perhaps in 2004, 2005. When did he leave? 2008? Yeah. It feels, <laughs> it feels longer than that. <laughs> Maybe I missed him. I don't know. Um, so any time up to the 20th or the 21st of January 2009, in fact, when he was the President of the United States, he would have been immune under that first category that I talked about, the immunity that attaches to serving heads of states, um, you know, and the, the status immunity that I was describing. But today, he doesn't fall into that category. He falls into the other category. He falls into the category of other officials or, or former officials. And so his position is really no different from the position of any other um, former, former official or any other, any other serving official who's not in this select group that I had mentioned before. So, to my mind, the preliminary analysis of, of the Swiss uh, Ministry of Justice is not only wrong, it's directly contrary, actually, to the Pinochet precedent. Pinochet was a former head of state, the crime that we were talking about was exactly the same thing. It was torture, you know, um, though in the case of George Bush there are also allegations of war crimes, but the primary one that um, and NGOs like Amnesty and the Center for Constitutional Rights have talked about was torture. Okay, so it's contrary to that. So what's the, what's the answer? What, why, why is this so, that there is no immunity for um, former officials or lower level officials, what's the reason? And it's at this point that I get a little bit technical, but I will try to explain the terminology that I use. There are a number of arguments that people have made as to why there is no immunity ratio material. One argument is to say this immunity applies to official acts. Okay? But when a person commits a war crime or commits torture or other international crimes, these acts should not be regarded as official acts because these are not acts in the exercise of that person's official functions. So that's one argument. Okay? These are not acts. It cannot be. International law cannot regard this as an act in the exercise of your official function if it is something that international law itself prohibits. That's one line of argument. A second line of argument is an argument that is based on what we call the hierarchy of norms in international law. As I'm sure many of you know, we have a category of norms in international law, 
peremptory norms or overriding norms of, of international law, norms of use cogens, okay. Um, and so, yes, another, another Latin phrase. I think it's a, a golden rule of lawyers. If you can say it in English, say it in Latin. <laughs> um, there's a group of people out there that are actually trying to campaign for plain English in the law. And as you can imagine, this is resisted by, by most lawyers. Plain English? We don't want plain English. That means people will understand what we're saying. <laughs> that can't be a good thing. <laughs> I mean, surely they're not going to pay 500 pounds an hour, you know, for you to advise them. They if found only out you didn't understand as well. Sorry? They found out you didn't understand. They, exactly. <laughs> They'd also find out that we don't understand what we're talking about. No, we can't, we can't, we can't have that. that. We can't have that. So, um, yes, the, the Latin is still important in, in, in the law. But anyway, so the second stream of argument is one which is based on what people describe as a hierarchy of norms, the idea that um, international crimes are prohibited by use Kogan's norms, peremptory or overriding norms of international law. And because of the high status that these principles, <coughs> excuse me, because of the high status that these principles have in international law, that there is in essence a conflict between that prohibition and the consequences of that prohibition and norms of immunity. That norms of immunity, though they exist in international law, I feel like lower level norms of international law, and that they should give way when we're talking about the enforcement of these higher order or overriding norms. So that's the second set of arguments. And the result of that argument would be that whenever we're talking about international crimes, violations of use Kogans, the rules relating to immunity should, should give way. And there are various ways of, of putting, putting that argument. I won't go into too much detail in relation to those arguments, except to say that in this paper that I was referring to, um, my co-author and I take the view that these arguments are, are misconceived, and that these are not the best arguments for saying that the official act immunity does not does not exist. In particular, the argument that says that these are not official acts because they are acts which are prohibited by by international law, we think that that argument is, is misconceived because essentially what it is saying is that because of the, the gross illegality of the act, international law cannot provide for immunity because it's grossly illegal. But actually that misconceives the basis on which immunity exists because it's suggesting that you can only have immunity for things that are, that are lawful and that to the extent that it is unlawful or to be more precise actually, to the extent that allegations are made of illegality or gross illegality, immunity ought not to exist. But immunity is actually there precisely in those circumstances. It's there precisely to protect officials from allegations of illegality. Mm. And at the time when a court has to decide on whether a person is immune or not, that is what it is. It's an allegation of illegality. And we cannot say that the court should first of all decide whether or not the act is illegal. When it finds that the act is illegal or grossly illegal, that means then that the person is not immune. And now the court can now decide whether or not the act is illegal. We are, in, in a way, putting the cart before, before the horse, because the very point of immunity is to prevent that determination. 
And I think in criminal cases, actually, that would be quite a damaging um, principle to say that, in effect, we assume this gross illegality because of the allegations, and that then opens the door for removing the immunity. So let me move on to actually the arguments that we put forward for why this type of immunity doesn't exist. And the argument goes back to the two reasons that I mentioned earlier for um, this official act immunity. You'll recall I said this immunity is there for two reasons. One, it's a substantive defense that says the individual official is not immune, sorry, is not responsible for acts which they do in their official capacity. It's, it's the government that's responsible. And two, that this immunity is there to prevent the circum circumvention of the immunity of the state. So the reason why, in our view, the reason why immunity, this official act immunity does not apply in cases of allegations of international crimes is because those two reasons for the immunity do not exist in the case or in the cases where um, the official is alleged to have committed an international crime. Those two reasons actually don't apply. Let's take the first reason, the reason that says an individual is not responsible for acts of the state. This is ordinarily true, that there's a separation between the responsibility of the state and the responsibility of officials of the state. You can't hold an official responsible for everything that they do in their state capacity. But in the case of international criminal law, or sorry, in the case of international crimes, the very purpose of international criminal law is to say that the individual is responsible. Right? The very purpose of individual international criminal law is to assert an individual responsibility of the official. So that reason, that first reason about a substantive defense, does not apply in the case of international crimes. <coughs> the second reason about circumventing the, the immunity of, of the state. Essentially, this reason is saying that there are certain acts for which international law does not allow foreign states and foreign courts to exercise jurisdiction over other states. That's the, that's the, the underlying point, right? That's that there's you know, certain acts that international law doesn't allow foreign states or foreign courts. But to the extent to which international law allows for extraterritorial jurisdiction over international crimes, we argue that this second reason also disappears. Okay. So the, to the extent that international law allows for extraterritorial jurisdiction over international crimes, this other reason disappears. Why? Because if international law allows for extraterritorial jurisdiction over these international crimes, it will, in many cases, be developing a rule which is necessarily inconsistent with the immunity rule. Okay. So it will be developing a rule which in many cases is necessarily inconsistent with, with immunity. Now, most in, well, the, the origins of international criminal law actually are based in attempt to criminalize acts committed by state agents. Um, in the development of all the international, well, nearly all the international crimes, there was a recognition that these are crimes that revolve essentially around state acts. For some crimes, it is clearer than others. And for some crimes, 
they only revolve around state acts. And the easiest example is torture. The Torture Convention prohibits not um, just any infliction of severe pain and suffering, but it has to be done by an official or by somebody acting in an official capacity. So the crime itself is necessarily limited to official acts or acts of officials. Right? And if at the same time international law provides for universal jurisdiction for torture, which international law does and which the Torture Convention does in a roundabout sort of way, but it does. If international law provides for universal or extraterritorial jurisdiction for torture, and that torture is necessarily about the acts of officials, it cannot at the same time have a rule that um, provides for immunity for state officials. Otherwise, the universal jurisdiction or the extraterritorial jurisdiction will be defeated. It will never apply. You cannot have a crime which is restricted to officials or official acts, provide for extraterritorial jurisdiction, and then at the same time say, because these are official acts, the person is, is immune. The two rules come into tension. They come into conflict. Now, this is not necessarily so. This necessary tension that I've just pointed out for torture doesn't work in quite the same way for all international crimes. It works for some, so grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions, I think, is another example. As you know, the Geneva Conventions provide for rules of international humanitarian law. In the main, they provide rules for international armed conflicts, i.e. armed conflicts between states. The Geneva Conventions provides for universal jurisdiction in relation to, to grave breaches. Because the Geneva Convention applies to armed conflicts between states, and because it is providing for universal jurisdiction, it is almost invariably talking about jurisdiction over acts of, of state officials, because the context in which it is placed is the context of a conflict only between states. So again, you can't have universal jurisdiction, but then on the other hand say, but because the person is a state official, they are immune, because that would defeat the principle of, of universal jurisdiction. And this takes us back to what the House of Lords said in the Pinochet case. This was effectively, I think, the reason, well, there were many reasons why the House of Lords um, said that Pinochet was not immune. And it's not clear that the House of Lords or the members of the House of Lords actually knew themselves what the reasons were. They, <laughs> they sort of grabbed here and there. They, they employed some of the arguments that I talked about earlier. You know, the arguments about these official acts. You know, it's in conflict with norms of use cogens. They employed those other things as well. But I think the best explanation for the decision in Pinochet is the explanation that says according universal jurisdiction in this type of crime necessarily removes the immunity because this is the according of the universal jurisdiction necessarily contemplates external scrutiny of official conduct in the context of international crimes. It necessarily does so. It's not so simple for the other international crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, other war crimes. It's not so simple. Why is it not so simple? Because those other international crimes are not restricted to state officials. Private persons can commit those other international crimes as well. It's not like torture 
or grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions which are placed in a state context. Crimes against humanity can be committed by a non-state group and very often are. And so it's more difficult to make the argument that conferring extraterritorial jurisdiction necessarily removes the immunity because the state can say, well, of course we conferred extraterritorial jurisdiction, but only for those non-state entities, not for us, you know, we're immune, but for the non-state entities, um, they, they're not immune. I, it's a plausible argument, but I think it's not a persuasive one because all of the international crimes, and if one goes back into the drafting history of the, the Genocide Convention or the early invocations of crimes against him, immunity, all of these crimes were crimes which were in the first place directed at, at state acts and only later on extended to non-state conduct. And the core of the creation of these international crimes was really an attempt to repress conduct by, by states. And so to the extent that international law accords extraterritorial jurisdiction in relation to these, to these crimes, it's difficult to argue that that core is also not carried over, that is extraterritorial jurisdiction in relation also to, to state conduct. So in our view, that, that removes the second reason for, for official act immunity, that saying, well, this is to prevent court of one state from exercising um, jurisdiction over other states. Because the extension of the universal jurisdiction itself necessarily does that. Um, and so the two reasons for this type of immunity um, go, go away. Now, to come back, I, mean, I think I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to stop here now, but let me just try and provide, provide an overview. My analysis has been trying to find out what international law actually says, and it may well be that some of you are, are not at all interested in what international <laughs> law actually, actually says. You may be more interested in why does international law say this, and I think I've tried to, to explain why international law has these different types of, of immunities. But there's a bigger question there. The bigger question is what role should foreign courts play in the prosecution of these international crimes or in providing redress for these international crimes? What role should foreign courts, foreign domestic courts play? We spend a lot of time thinking about the role international courts should play, but there's also a lot of activity at the national level, at the level of foreign, um, foreign domestic courts. And these are questions that revolve both around the question of universal jurisdiction and also around um, the immunity, the immunity question. My, my own view about about the role of, of foreign courts is that, despite the fact that I I write a lot about immunity and I think in the context of international crimes, there is no no immunity. I'm actually cautious, I think, about the role that foreign courts can and should play in prosecuting and providing redress for, for international crimes. First of all, I think the, the immunity only does not, the immunity does not exist in the case of international crimes. And it's not a wider removal of immunity, even for other human rights violations. And I think there's a distinction between international crimes and other human rights violations. 
um, are much more cautious about trying to use foreign courts for addressing other human rights violations because even though we think about human rights norms as necessarily universal and about a standard which applies to all in fact in the application of human rights law and we see this at the international and the regional level in the application of human rights law there is much more uh, there's much more of a of a margin of interpretation than is often acknowledged so even in the European context, you know, the European Court has the margin of appreciation doctrine. Even at the domestic level, we have questions about should some of these issues be decided by courts rather than political entities. And essentially, we, we have to acknowledge that judicial organs are playing a role in setting some degree of national policy in relation to some of these human rights issues. And for that reason, I'm much more cautious about the involvement of a foreign domestic judiciary in entering into those questions, entering into those questions in relation to societies that they are to some extent removed from, and societies where there isn't really any connection of accountability between the judges and the society. Even at the international level, some people have opposition, but at least we acknowledge that well, the state's concerned, our parties to instruments, they have ways in which, if they want, they can change the treaties, they can remove the judges, they can influence the process. It's not so in relation to foreign judiciaries. So in relation to general human rights violations, I'm much more, much more cautious. In relation to international crimes, genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, I think we've, we've crossed the Rubicon, we've crossed the bridge, in the sense that international law... We recognize that this is the core. You know, sometimes they're described as core crimes. This is, this is the core. And there's much less margin there. There's some, in the context of some decisions, there's some margin for, for differential in interpretation, but there's much, much less. It's a much narrower set of, of norms. And I think that perhaps may explain why they may be more suitable. I'm not saying there's no political tension, but they may be more suitable. For, for application by, by foreign courts. Yeah. Great, thanks very much, Deborah.